0: Welcome to the Vortex Nation podcast brought to you by lovers of hunting, shooting, public lands, the Second Amendment, and good food. What's up, Vortex Nation? We're here, got a really good one ahead of us. And uh, if you're watching on the video, the setup in here is a little bit different because actually Mr. Muckintern is to my left. Not Mark. Mark is out hunting currently. I think that he heard DJ was coming. DJ Strunts was sitting across the table from myself. And last time DJ was here, he slapped a tourniquet on Mark. Mark felt very uncomfortable, and so, anyways, I think that's why he picked this week to bounce specifically. And no, Eric. And no, Eric. Well, Eric is here, but Eric is Heidi. he's also yes, not really here. But uh, anyway, also across the table from us, and DJ, you've been on the podcast once before, so if people go back and see the old boats and bows pod venture, uh, he helped us figure out, you know, a lot of uh, backcountry or backwoods sort of trauma and, and preparedness. But also with DJ is James Davenport, and uh, both you guys are with North American Rescue, and so both of you guys are, I'm blaming you, you're responsible for <laughs> when I'm scrolling through Instagram, and it's just a fine bluebird day, and all of a sudden I see someone with a leg blown off or something like that. It's, it happens. It that's, does. That's, it's, I'll take responsibility is, yes, for that. Yeah. The thing is, it's graphic, but uh, it's also it's also real, so I know you guys yep. aren't doing it st- all for the shock value. It's there's definitely a lot of learning there too. But is there any that we're not doing for shock value?
1: Yeah, <laughs> uh, shock value always helps. <laughs> it does. <laughs> so shock people out of their
0: apathy. I guess that's true. But James, why don't you? Uh, we'll have you introduce yourself here, and uh, you also have most of the information on the topic that we're going to be talking about today, which is essentially <laughs> <me>. <laughs> getting into the life of a a special forces medic. And there's uh, is that the right term? Yeah, is that kind of that's kind of like it a general is. term, right? Because there's a special lot special of...
2: operations is the more general term. Okay. okay. Special forces speaks specifically to army green berets, but right. it's people interchange them so much now that it's hard to know one from the other from a, the <laughs> civilian side of things. Like, you know, what's the difference in a seal and a green beret? Good hair. Oh, oh
0: okay, right. Yeah. Noted. Okay. Should have known. Noted. Yeah. But uh, yeah, introduce yourself for the for the listeners out there.
2: So James Davenport, I have been with NAR for a few years now. I was a longtime fan of their <laughs> equipment, and clearly some of it has been used on me before. Came to work at NAR after I retired from active duty in 2016, and kind of got into the army by happenstance. 9/11. Y- 9/11 being, being happenstance. the happenstance. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. My dad was spent 32 years in the army. Was a Normandy Ranger. Uh, big shoes to fill like or big set of underwear to fill. Um <laughs> and graduated, he didn't want me doing that, so I went on to be a firefighter paramedic, did that for ten years and then nine eleven happened and I couldn't just sit on the sidelines. So enlisted shortly thereafter and then took off on the grand adventure of being a Green Beret medic. Okay. So
0: I didn't realize that prior to you had the, the paramedics experience already. So what I'm curious makes somebody, what do you have in you that makes you want to do the job of patching people up in just traumatic situations? Because I got to say, like, <laughs> we did a little bit, we did a class down here. We've, had, we've done two here in the last two days when you guys have been here. Really informative stuff, really good stuff to know. But, man, I don't know what it is about, you know, me, and I know I'm not obviously the only one, but when we start showing pictures and we start talking about like arteries and veins and blood coming out and, you know, all these kinds of lacerations and whatnot, I just, I get a little weak at the knees, a little queasy.
2: It's a calling. Yeah. I mean, you know, I thought, quite frankly, I thought I wanted to be a trauma surgeon. I still want to be a trauma surgeon when I grow up. Uh, I'm just running out of time, but (laughs) graduated high school, went on to college, did the baseball scholarship thing and with full intent on being a being a doctor, was a biology chemistry major. And then my the end of my sophomore year lost my scholarship. Had to have something pay for college. So I'm like, well I'll go be a firefighter. (laughs) And so got started at that and kinda just didn't look back like until quite frankly, nine eleven. And then it just seemed like a natural progression from just a tailboard firefighter, somebody rides backwards in the fire truck, the dude holding the hose, basically, to become an EMT and then a paramedic, and then it just comes natural, the Mm. medicine piece. Like, I don't fight it. I don't spend a particular amount of time studying like some other people do. Mm. It, It truly is a gift that I've recognized that I have, and I use it to the best of my ability to make a difference in the world a resilient citizen as some might call it. So So you
0: just enjoy kind of seeing the way it all goes together and works the whole human body and all that stuff. I mean, like when we were doing that class, some of the stuff that you're bringing up, just, I mean, all I know is it's bleeding a lot, slap tourniquet on it, but you're talking about, I mean, where the arteries are, where the nerves are, how they all run in parallel to one another, how the muscles are all interacting with one another. It's, it's complicated stuff under our heads. Uh, it is. <laughs> that somehow, it always baffles me, you know, like, you have car troubles, the car's little engine light comes on, it knows what's wrong with it, you gotta ask it what's wrong with it, but it's like, you know, the same thing, When I, we have a problem with our bodies, we gotta go see another person to figure out what's wrong with us, you know, because it's like, it's it's amazing how much our bodies do without us having any knowledge of what it's doing, you know? Right.
2: Well, I don't know if I mentioned it this morning, I certainly did yesterday, the whole intelligent design which is a controversial topic of and of itself, that somebody created everybody and had specific purposes in mind when it happened. And as I was talking this morning with respect to where the arteries lie in the body, in the upper arms and the the upper legs, they're well protected inside of the musculature of those extremities in the same places they are on other predators like Mm. uh, lions and tigers and bears, oh my yeah. Um, but they're in, on the inside, so that we're capable of conducting warfare and being reasonably protected. You know, from slashing of swords and this. You know, not like going back to the samurai days, but they're on the inside. You know, where they are reasonably protected against everything, obviously, except for an IED blast. Hmm. So, yeah, when but, an IED goes off, you're- yeah, you're, especially when you're spreading all over top of it, it's hard to take in. <laughs> no,
1: it's easy to take in. It's oh, hard yeah, rest to do with it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you don't really have much thought on that
2: one. Huh. Yeah, I suppose I suppose you might be right. But I mean we can get into the, that whole piece later, but you know, people are like, how do you li- make jokes about being blown up? I'm like, I can either laugh about it or cry. I mean, tomorrow's my live date. Yeah. Uh which is a- pretty
1: incredible. Okay. Can you yeah. so
2: explain what that is. So on 28 October twenty twelve at eight oh six in the morning, I stepped on a improvised device that had long lasting consequences to my body, Man. and I'll be here local when that takes place tomorrow. But yeah. it's like it's replaced my birthday. Quite frankly, I wow, no longer celebrate my birthday. I mean, my daughter does. I mean, she sends me a card for my birthday, but I think more about my live date because I had a choice in some of that and didn't really have a choice in being born. So. Um, That's an interesting way of looking at it. Yeah, preparation that went into uh, my training, uh, both as a medic and just as a a war fighter in general, if you will, has taken over several times and resulted in me still being here at the end of the day. So, not to mention that I'm just a stubborn sob and refuse to die, which absolutely helps. Yeah. Uh, so amazing. Man, like you said, I mean, there's so
0: many things we can go and into. Where's the birthday cake? I I feel bad now, yeah, because if you would have, would have told me that we had this date coming up.
2: We'll go out to the warehouse later and have <laughs> a sure. birthday I'm party. <laughs> I'm sure,
0: yeah. <laughs> we'll grab a couple beers after this. But, yeah. uh, man, there's so many things to get into. But I, I think, you know, being along with the topic, I mean, certainly that's part of the topic because you had that event happen to you while you were in this job of being, you know, special operations medic. But... Can you go into explain? We'll get it a little bit, some more of a foundation before we really dive into it. So, you mentioned how it's kind of complicated. We were even having a little bit of a of a conversation before we got started. Special operations medic can kind of be a lot of different things. I was even trying to look it up myself. There's a lot of maybe maybe there's not even a lot of it, and that this is also just part of what I misunderstand. But there's different types of special operations. You have Green Berets. You've got SEALs. You've got reinforced recon. The Air Force has their kind of thing, PJs and all that stuff. And I think there's medics within each one of those. Are there medics that are even bouncing around between all of them? And how does that all work? Well,
2: all of Special Operations Command has medics or corpsmen specific to their unit.
0: Okay.
2: Um, and so uh, Special Operations Medic is just a huge umbrella term that encompasses all of us. Okay. I mean, by and large, Green Beret medics are. Our Army Special Forces medics receive the lion's share of the training longer than anybody else. When I w- was in the course, the first half of the course was called Special Operations Combat Medic. And then the second half of the course is called Special Forces Medical Sergeants course. Mm-hmm. So your SEALs, Rangers, uh, Green Berets, Civil Affairs Medics, some other support guy- medics are all in the same course for the first roughly six months. And then we separate the wheat from the chaff and the SF guys go forward. So every Mm. now and then you'll have a seal in the group, but it was few and far between at the time. The class behind me didn't have one. Our class had one, and the class ahead of us didn't have any Mm. uh, in the class itself. But uh, that seals, that is. And and so at the time, the seals were doing is – they would send guys to the SOCOM or Special Operations Combat Medic portion. They would return to their unit, and then once they made a certain rank, then they would return them to the schoolhouse to take the second half of the course. That way it ensured that they got something out of the course at least, as opposed to it taking a year to create a Green Beret medic out, out the gate for just the medical portion of the training.
0: Yeah. Now, you're not only having to do that year of training like do you have to become green beret special forces first and then you become then a medic within that or how does that all work too because i always think to myself i mean when you talk about when you talk about medics especially like what you did i can't eat, i don't know i i have a hard time thinking of anything that's like more Scary of a person to have to run into if I were on the wrong side uh, <laughs> than somebody like that because not only do they know how to make holes but they know how to patch them up they know how you work how like I mean they know more about me than I know about me and that's uh, just a that's a lot of training and just a lot of know how and man it's crazy so it, yeah what all what all goes into
2: that so uh, we all whether you're approaching being a Green Beret as an officer or you want to be a weapons guy, an engineer, a comms guy, uh, or a medic, uh, you all go to selection together. Okay. And then based on a bunch of tests that they give you there and the ASVAB, your score on the ASVAB and a couple of other things, they decide what you're probably best at. And uh, by and large, the guys who do the best on those standardized tests become medics. Um, and then it's, you can be a medic or you can not be an SF, which is kind of weird, uh, because there's a lot of guys that do not enjoy being a medic, but that was their only way onto a team. <laughs> and so they did it, but like, holy, that's different than guys who enjoy medicine. Uh, guys on the team usually say it comes in one of two pieces. You're either a brainiac medic or you're a tactician that's horrible at medicine and nobody relies <laughs> on you for it. So, uh, other than just having to fill that slot in a team, I think I'm a little bit of both in that not just a medic. I went to sniper school, attended a whole bunch of weapons courses and advanced targeting courses and intelligence courses. So, I wanted to be a well-rounded medic as opposed to just being well-rounded. So,
1: Yeah, Mm because the the responsibilities that he would have on a team are not just like you do medicine. That's like at the very end of the list – is you do medicine. When he has everything self- else, you know, on top of that is like, yeah, he was their sniper. He may gosh. be, you know, whatever else is required
2: yeah. from hum- the
1: team because it's a 12-person team.
2: Right. Human yeah. intelligence, I had a huge piece of that pie. Like on a, as DJ was saying, that's a 12-man team led by a captain, a warrant officer, if the team is lucky or unlucky in some cases, and a master sergeant, which is the senior enlisted guy. And then you have an intelligence sergeant who had to have been one of the other four specialties before moving on to being the intelligence NCO. And then two of each, weapons, engineer, medic, and communications. One's a senior, one's a junior. And then there's intermixed responsibilities between those two for each of the specialties. But the medics generally share most of all of it. So,
0: yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, if we, you know, you, you look at the title of this podcast, and you're like, oh, yeah, we're going to talk about a guy who's a medic. Like, he just does medic stuff. I mean, we talk about a guy, you know, you're looking into the life of somebody who basically had to learn it all.
1: Yeah. Well... You spent a lot I mean, of time behind glass on a long, oh, yeah. A lot of time.
2: A lot of time. The rotation that I, I was injured in 2012 when I, where I lost my leg, I spent a disproportionate amount of time until being blown up the second time. Like whacking dudes from a distance uh with either well, after the first explosion well it? the the first one happened on the fourteenth of october twenty twelve like oh. uh yeah, it's passed, but so, I got it okay. it was in a vehicle we drove over some daisy chained uh hundred seven millimeter rocket rounds that detonated aft of the front tire on the vehicle. I was the sitting in the passenger front seat we caught the t c seat or truck commander. And then uh, I ended up with a big piece of steel in the back of my left leg that had to be surgically removed. And then there was a gaping hole there that I woke up every morning and packed with gauze, had to remove it the next day and repack it. Not like packing, when we talk about an arterial wound in a junctional area of the body, the junctional being where limbs attach to the torso and using that packing to stop bleeding. In this instance, it's used to fill a cavity so that the cavity granulate so that tissue granulates from the inside out and you don't end up with it being closed on the outside and then fluid filling that cavity and then it becoming an infection that's the way a lot of bad infections start overseas so it was like quarter inch wide gauze that you loosely pack in there and it's its whole goal is just to keep that cavity open so that it can granulate from the inside out. From tertiary intent. So these two events occurred two weeks apart? Yeah, 14 days, 8 hours, and 11 minutes.
3: So you were you were then operational post-injury?
2: Yes. That's incredible. Yeah, I tried to. So we flew. Uh, there was a firefight that ensued after the vehicle got blown up. A little bit later, a helicopter came and picked me and a, another guy up that was in the same vehicle. It was his fifth IED incident, and he was a little rattled mentally. Yep. And so, uh, and then they flew us to Kow Afghanistan, which is south, southeast, I'm sorry, northeast of Kandahar, about an hour flight. And uh, the SEALs were in charge of the commando mission there. And so they dropped us off and, you know, it took a few hours for them to f- clean me up and patch me patch me up and decide what they were going to do with it. And as soon as I had an opportunity to leave, I went right back down the flight line, tried to commandeer a helicopter to take me back. And the SEAL Command Master Chief came out and he's like, he's like, are you Davenport? And I'm like, uh, yeah. He goes, I just got a phone with your Command Sergeant Major. He said, you were probably down here on the flight line looking for a helicopter to get right back. And I was supposed to stop you. <laughs> so two weeks later, when I got blown up a second time, he came in the hospital as I arrived uh, making jokes about why I wasn't a Navy SEAL, and I told him I didn't have good hair, and he took his hat off, and he's just as bald as I am. It was, <laughs> it was an interesting moment. But so my curiosity
3: here comes from the level of injury that you received. I mean, if it was it sounded like it was catastrophic
0: on the first go, yeah,
1: Random- it was.
0: It was. It was fairly bad. It was bad. Yeah, giant chunks yeah. of steel aren't really meant to go in your leg.
3: No, no. So is I mean, is that atypical or is that typical? Like considering your line of work, you you encounter this incident. You had to have something surgically removed from you. You're you're doing a pack every day, and then you're out back in the field. Is that uncommon, or or because you're an uncommon man, that kind of comes with the territory. Uh,
2: I think it. I don't know. That's a hard question to answer. Yeah. Like, if I say it's not common, then it then I sound like I'm something superhuman, and that's certainly not the case. But I like to think that, and the way I rationalize going back to my team is they didn't have a medic. Yes. My team sergeant had been a medic, uh, spent some time over behind the fence at CAG. And then when he got promoted to E eight had to which is a master sergeant to take a team, he had to leave and take a team. And so he came to seventh group and took a team and that's where I ended up.
1: But, and he plays into the story later. Dun, dun, dun.
2: Yes. So hmm. but it like I try to put myself in their shoes. Like they were without a medic until I got back. And I couldn't have my guys going out on mission without a medic. Understood. You know, regardless of what yeah. had happened to me. You know, it was, tr- it was a scratch. It happens.
0: It has one hell of a scratch.
2: Yeah. I'm it sorry. was. I mean, it was a big scratch. But um, <laughs> so, and it bled pretty substantially. Not like we were talking about in the class this morning. But, was it tourniquet worthy? Oh, no. No. Oh, like, man. it originally applied one. Because I didn't know how bad it was because I can't quite see the entire back of the leg. Sure. Right. Which is good. Otherwise, there would be something seriously wrong with the front side of the leg if I can see the back side from the front side. So, But. um, I didn't
1: realize it was your left
2: leg that got hit both times. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That leg has been, that leg has taken a beating. I'm guessing, (laughs) though, you
0: know, I mean, back then, he described himself. Because how tall are you? Uh, Five eight, four and foot And You described yourself as four being two hundred and forty pounds back in that day, yeah. so you
2: had a you had a fair amount of built-in uh, body armor. Yeah, yeah, I was I was a big guy. Man, yeah, thank God. If, I mean, not for not be for a small not, guy like a little yeah. string bean like me. You know? <laughs> it would have disartic the blast, the second blast, the one that I stepped on would have disarticulated your leg at the hip. That's good it,
0: to know. It, I'm
3: not going to drive over any yeah. ad
0: soon.
2: No, I hope not. Forgive the morbidity,
3: but that is a fascinating thing to think about. Yes. Like, Like your build quality was such that you maintained integrity after the blast.
1: Intelligent design. Yeah,
3: Strong men are hard to
2: kill and are generally more useful.
1: Yeah. What is that saying about us, Jimmy? I mean, he just said we would have been disarticulated.
2: I'm trying. (laughs) (laughs) Just saying. Yeah. Like, neither one of you go to places where that stuff takes place, generally speaking, uh, unless you're going to Portland recently. (laughs) (laughs) So. <laughs> <laughs> true, true,
0: man. So you know you you bring up that that kind of that kind of shifts gears a little bit into. I'm imagining just an intense amount of physical conditioning and, and strength training and all that that's necessary when you have a profession like this. I'm also picturing just an immense amount of training your brain as well. And you even alluded to the fact earlier on that all the training that you had came into play in a lot of really. Crucial and mega high stress situations. So, what does what does and obviously this gets into the life of a special operations medic. What does that life look like in terms of preparing? Because I can't imagine. I I remember you know having some family, some friends, some people that we know through Vortex. They just discuss the training that they go through in order to go on missions and and be you know an accurate shooter and understand uh, tactics and this that and the other thing you're also then having to figure out all these things trained about how the human body works which is a complexity in and of itself then you're doing strength training did you figure out a way to to fit 48 hours into a day?
2: oh yeah yeah
0: you just don't sleep um so that's the answer
2: I don't know that's always the answer but being down range is just a lot of work and there's no two ways about it you know you depending on what your mission is, dictates your workload but when the rotation prior in Iraq like it was intelligence drives operations and so I was either talking to people to define targets so that the team could go hit or I was hitting them with the team and the intelligence guys at the time on a team would be up 20 hours every other day because uh, we had to do all like there's a crap ton of work that goes into that intelligence piece.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And then, of course, I'm not going to collect the intelligence and then not go hit the target with the team. That's crappy. But w- <laughs> so while everybody else is like racked out, getting some sleep, like I'm still writing reports, you know, Okay, because like the way we get intelligence is we pay for it same way police officers do to a degree. Mm-hmm. And that money has to be justified somewhere, and so that goes into the report: how you met, what was talked about, you know, any abnormalities about the person you're meeting with. Is it a, a one-time deal? Are you meeting with them multiple times? Are you do you pay them for stuff regularly, or is it just when they bring you intelligence? I mean, there's a lot of work goes into that piece. Okay, um, yeah. and usually. The intelligence NCO on the team manages the whole of the intelligence and then tells me what I need, what he needs to fill gaps. And then I go out and find people to fill those gaps. Okay. So Hmm. it's a huge, huge piece. Like, and I mean, that in and of itself is a very uh, labor intensive job. Well, and there's no way
0: that that lifestyle sort of quote unquote ends or whatever or slows down when you get back home. Because it's it sounds to me like when you're downrange, there's really not a chance to there's not really a chance. It sounds like to just go like work out or, I maybe there is I don't know. You just make time. Yep. But when you get back home, it sounds like that's where you do all the preparation and then you go on. Essentially, I don't know how long you were uh, you were deployed for, but that's like some people talk about. Oh yeah, you've got game day or whatever you know. And it's like yeah, you played in a game for three hours on a weekend, and then, you know, <laughs> right. your game day is a couple months long. Is that what it looks like, though, when you get back? Is it still just, you get back home, and you're like, oh, yep, we're
2: still running 20-hour days. Yep. Well, I mean, you get home, you take some downtime, spend some time with the family, decompress, or try to, and then, <laughs> yeah. you, and then you go right back into a training cycle, getting ready for the next rotation. And you're either going someplace like South America or Africa, that are non-traditional combat rotations so that you're still busy, you're just doing a different part of the job, and then come back and then start the cycle all over again. Mm-hmm. It's it's really soft as a whole, and the command has been run ragged, and to a large part, Seventh Group has taken the biggest brunt of the casualties in Afghanistan. I mean, it was to the point where we stopped focusing on South America. That's South and Central America's whose seventh so group was our air of responsibility, but that focal point kind of got mixed up in uh, right after the war on terror kicked off and it was all feet on the ground in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. I have got a few trips to Iraq, but that was when I was still in 20th group doing the National Guard SF thing, which is not the National Guard, you know, like model of a week in a month, two weeks out of the summer kind of thing. I... I have more rotations and trips than a lot of active duty dudes that I graduated with and schools, for that matter, just because I was either deployed, getting ready for deployment, coming back from deployment or going to a school. Yeah. I lived as a geo bachelor for a long time, huh. but I wouldn't I took a leave of absence like after 9-11 happened when I joined, when I enlisted, uh, I had a little girl on the way. She was born the 29th of September, 2001. And so I waited for her to show up and get her and make sure everything's taken care of at the house. And I wouldn't – not that I'm not missed when I'm not there, you know, but, like, get everything ready for me to be gone for a bit. And so I took a five-year hiatus from the fire department to go take care of the all the training and become operational and then called the fire department. I'm like, hey, guys, uh, I just got back from my first rotation – Uh I know I'm supposed to come back to work, but I'm uh I'm not. I'm gonna keep doing this SF thing. And uh (laughs) (laughs) I had just been promoted to lieutenant six months before I left for the army. (laughs) And uh people like that's kinda crappy that you'd take that knowing you were leaving. I'm like, that's a huge pay increase. You pay on sand. Like I'm trying to get mine. (laughs) Like I was about to take a huge cut in pay from a lieutenant paramedic at the fire department to specialist in the Army, Mm -hmm. making $34,000 a year. Mm -hmm. But the poor guy that had to fill my shoes for that almost four years before I resigned, he was mad too because he didn't get promoted. He's just filling it as an engineer (laughs) working in a lieutenant's job, thinking that, well, you know, when I come back, that he'd just get bumped back down or find another slot. And then he eventually got promoted uh, once they figured out I'm not coming back. But, I mean, at the time, you couldn't do anything about it. Guys were taking on – you know, responsibility of fighting a war that the nation needed us to fight. Yeah. And uh, thank God for the ESGR, the Guard Reserve, as almost like an insurance for the federal government. It's like you can't fire guys that deploy in defense of their nation. But it was steady. First trip was to South America after, like, I graduated the SF qualification course, took a week off, deployed. And that that started what would then be Hmm. my time as an SF medic until 2016 when I retired. What was the uh, what was the hardest part of your training? Ooh, hardest part of training? SEER. SEER, okay. Yeah. Like, we all go, or all Green Beret students that are in the Q course, do everything together. You know, okay. like, it's medics, comms guys, weapons guys, officers, whole nine yards, does all the field problems together, just like a team would, like, you're all learning together and then you split up and go do your individual job piece. Well, everybody else is thirteen weeks except for medics and we're at fifty-six weeks. Oof. And so dudes had graduated the course, gone on two deployments before I ever got out of the course. Yeah. But seer
0: for those not familiar with is survive, evade, resist, escape. Yes. Correct? Yep. And so that was pretty tough for you. Then is it is it this do like I remember family going through in and serving and saying that they were going to Seer School, they, but they weren't in—they weren't Green Berets or anything like that. They were in a different branch. Is it the same Seer School for everyone, or is it like, oh, you're uh, you're this guy, so your Seer School is going to look like this, and you're this guy, so your Seer School—it's so different. It is. Okay. Yeah,
2: there's multiple levels of Seer. Starts at of pain. Seer A. Multiple <laughs> yeah, levels of it pain. Sounds yeah, like. that's 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 a great way to put it. Both physical and mental pain. If you're there to learn, you learn a lot about yourself and where you're breaking points are I remember getting questioned by an adversarial person and he brought up my daughter and I just it was one of those days I'm like the lip starts quivering and I'm like oh my god this guy's gonna make some comment about my daughter and I'm gonna go high and right on his (laughs) on his backside right here you know with people on the other side of a two-way mirror watching this thing go down and be like oh my god he, you know but I managed to control myself right then, but, like, I've watched some weird stuff go down. We had one guy, well, let me back up and say, when I went to SEER school, like, it was just as my space was becoming huge, right? So, Noted. a while ago. Okay. Right? If you have a profile, when you show up to school, like, sear level C that special operations guys go to, and pilots, uh, but when you show up, the intel people that work at the school have already researched you. So if there's something out there to find, they're going to find it. And some people get questioned about some of that stuff. And there was a guy in the class who found out that his wife was cheating on him through pictures of her with another dude, like four layers deep in other people's profiles. No kidding. Yeah. And so they've got him in what they call the fishbowl, where it's an instructor and there's cameras watching, kind of like it is here. And... Wow, the, that in, would suck. the instructor. I was about
0: to say, yeah. There's,
2: there's no like, uh, oh, we'll let him off on that one since <laughs> yeah. it's just, just school. It's no, no. Yeet. Like, tossed a picture down in front of him, and just stared at him. And then he, <laughs> lip starts quivering. He's, you know, he's like, he go, like, I'm gonna need a minute. He goes, you're not getting a minute. You're in captivity. I wow, about that. It's, you know, and then it's like, is he the only one? How many other? You know, you can't keep your wife happy. Like, like Whoa. I mean, Man, like it lasts. Oh yeah, hard. Back. Like, oh. Like didn't let up. Like Yikes. he started crying, and the rest of us like,
3: <laughs> I was man. Trying. That's like that's yeah, like in a my own life
2: own. version of isn't that in that Jarhead the movie. Yeah, something like right. that happens.
0: Sips in a video or whatever. Yeah. What were you gonna well, say, Ryan? I was just gonna say
3: like, what a phenomenal, I guess, explanation <laughs> of your level of of training. It's not just medicine because I think some people who are tuning this in they're like, oh, we're gonna talk about tourniquets and gauze <laughs> and sucking chest wounds, but it's like there's so many more layers to everything that comes into this to build you into a resilient a field expedient and combat-ready medic because the trauma that you're going to see emotional and physical is going to be just astronomical.
2: Yeah, SF medics or Green Beret medics are wholly different than the rest of Special Operations Community Medicine. Like Ranger medics are medics first and everything else, and nothing else second, quite frankly. I mean, they're like, they've got other little ancillary jobs, but none of it replaces them being a medic, Mm -hmm. right? That is foremost In Army Special Forces, like, I mean, I wear all the hats all the time, all at the same time. I could be hands deep in somebody fixing them to calling in uh, air weapons teams to drop close air support on a target we're hitting or bad dudes that, you know, might have a team pinned down to collecting intelligence to fixing people's pay problems to, I mean, it is huge. It's
0: it's kind of funny that I just brought up, before we entered into this podcast, I brought up that I watched the movie True Lies. According to Adrian and Pete, told me I had to in one of these last... We talked about Arnold Schwarzenegger. And
1: Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, yeah, it's a great James movie. The old yeah. school.
0: Yeah. 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 And, and, and people watch these movies and they see Arnold Schwarzenegger where he, he whips out a pistol and he shoots, you know, some dude 150 yards away. And then he gets on a sniper rifle and he snipes somebody with ultimate precision. Then he runs <laughs> over and he jumps in a Harrier jet and he flies the Harrier jet all over. Then, he, you know, Whatever. He basically knows how to do everything. He's a one-man wrecking machine, and it's you. People watching like, oh yeah, you know, it's it's Schwarzenegger, it's Hollywood, you know, whatever. We get it. No, people like that exist. That's what you had to be. You had to be the guy who could. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I wouldn't. No, no, no. I mean, no, you, no. It sounds no. like
0: you're the true lies Schwarzenegger. No, no,
1: no. I, he was I, he was more buff. Yeah, I. <laughs> I'd, He's like, don't compare me to. Schwarzenegger. Yeah, Arnie was looking
2: a little like small. He, in that
0: movie, kind of like us.
2: Yeah, he. Uh, I had better legs. They were, yeah. you know, when you're that short, it's easy to be bomb proof, right? You know, like, I mean, he's tall, dude. Yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, to be a bodybuilder, at least for the time period that he got started, you know, like, I mean, he was at the top of his game, yeah. But yeah, I hate like people be like, I saw such a movie, man. What's that like? I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, it's nothing like the movie, man. Oh, I'm sure it's like, absolutely nothing, but I yeah, mean, this the amount the skill set that you had
0: to hold, though, and then and just the I have a hard time sometimes going from checking emails to making lunch, you know? It's like, oh, well, I'm switching gears from, you know, writing something to making a sandwich, and you're having to switch gears from patching <laughs> somebody up to now having to engage in a gunfight. You know, I mean, that's and that's just a typical day.
3: I, I've got a question about the evolution of combat medicine in the, you know, 15 years that you were doing this. What did you see change in, like, operating in, in like two much thing? time that we have. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, like we talked about IEDs. I remember being a very young person and knowing, knowing guys that were um, like upperclassmen, seniors that were enlisting and, and then going over in the first waves and into the invasion of Baghdad and that kind of thing. We started hearing about IEDs. Yeah. And it, it's not like IEDs were foreign on on the battlefield, but, oh, no. but now it was it was the tactic. And I imagine that training for that kind of thing in that kind of environment, but also doing operations in South and Central America. I mean... How, these two different places these two different biomes that you're operating in does does combat medicine apply differently there or is I guess like this this huge picture of combat medicine and how you did it and what changed from 2001 to 2016 like was anything a full reversal like a 180 we used to do this now we do this because of this or is it too situational and there's a hundred 40,000 different circumstances that can come up and turn the whole thing upside down.
2: Well, I mean, medicine is constantly in flux, right? Like what we think is true today, we may find data to support the exact contrary and look One, at COVID. I was about to say we're in 2020. <laughs> yeah, I think you yeah. we know a lot about how, I, how right. medicine can so, change.
3: And what, what I was thinking, what brought this up, is like I was thinking about CPR certification. I think I became CPR <laughs> you certified about that earlier. Yeah, yeah, when yeah. I was, I think it was like 15 or 16, and it yeah. was breath, breath, compressions. And now there's zero precedence on on breathing, None right, whatsoever,
1: only for drowning.
3: Okay, right, and rescue breathing. Yeah, and now you taking it to 11 in in context here. I'd love to know, like, what was the, the most polarized thing that you saw happen?
2: <laughs> so most polarized, oh, that's a good question. I'm going to have to think about that one for a minute. So while I'm while my brain is processing that piece, you know, everybody assumes that going through the SF medic course as a paramedic with 10 years experience would be people are like, oh, man, it must be pretty easy. Mm-hmm. I'm like, no, I had a bunch of bad habits I had to fix. Yep. You know, okay. like, I mean, we had a PA fail out. A phys- physician's assistant could not un could not reverse himself. True. I'm trying to find other no. words. You know what <laughs> I, was, I was gonna say? Don't yeah. That was
1: well done, James. <laughs> I was waiting for a beep. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Himself.
2: Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, this well, man
3: is a professional orator as well. Uh, yes. Yes.
2: <laughs> yes. The biggest change. so military medicine as a whole, and I mentioned this uh the past couple of days while here teaching your guys about being able to care for casualties is not situational like principles of medicine apply whether you're in whether you're bleeding to death from an extremity wound in combat after stepping on an IED or being sh- shot to having a leg severed from a motorcycle accident or an industrial accident to active shooter incidents yeah. right it's that application that changes, right? So, like, with the tourniquet in specific, they're often not the only way to deal with a bleeding issue, uh, a okay. life-threatening hemorrhage. Yeah. It's the most expedient way to deal with it while you're being shot at, right? Like, there's a ton of techniques that you could use to stop bleeding from an extremity, not kneeling on people. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. That is... Some shenanigans.
0: Insta- I remember we were doing like some tourniquet re- Tuesdays. Instagram got some. Oh, got they're mad heated at about us. it. They yeah. got mad at us when we didn't kneel on somebody's pelvis when we put a tourniquet
2: on their leg. Why do you need to? So, 240 pounds. In kit, I'm almost 400 pounds. Shrek. Anybody Anybody in this room want me kneeling on their pelvis? No, sir. All right? No, especially like, not if I right. just
0: got like blowed up, you know? Right.
2: There was a study, and there's been several of them done. Uh, in the past couple years, uh, looking at specificity of manual diagnostic tools, I guess you could say, or manual maneuvers to to diagnose in the field an open pelvic fracture. Okay. 13% of fourth-year surgical residents at Walter Reed, only 13% were successful at diagnosing an open pelvic fracture manually. And a, you want in a nice
0: calm, controlled environment, environment right? B- no with bullets a, whizzing by. Spa no music playing in, in the background,
2: right? <laughs> Nurses like massaging you while you're right. But and then the idea that oh, I'm just going to run on and drop 400 pounds worth of weight on your pelvis, not knowing whether what's happened to it, right? Yeah. Like if it's a simple oh, got a gunshot wound to the leg, well then just put a tourniquet on it, right? people spend more time dilly-dallying with the leg or an arm trying to figure out how to kneel on it and put a tourniquet on at the same time than if they had just put the tourniquet on it. Mm-hmm. I mean...
0: When you were saying, too, I remember in the class, you were saying, well, some people would say, well, if I have my knee on, you know, then it's temporarily stopping the blood flow, and then if I have to kind of interrupt my tourniquet application process to send some rounds downrange, you know, at least I still have the knee on there. So then, And you were saying, just pick one. You well, know, kind of go kinda don't half ass one thing or two things, kinda whole ass one thing.
2: Right. Right. It's like the you see videos or pictures, they'll have a guy'll have either his pistol out or a carbine pinned underneath his arm. Have a hold of somebody's body armor and be walking backwards, dragging a casualty, trying to pull security.
1: It looks heroic. I mean, oh, yeah. the, it, the, does. it looks it's awesome. A great on, image. For the Graham, it's a great, oh, yeah. you know, like,
0: people man, are he's like. Saving that guy guy's and he's shooting yeah. bad dudes at the
2: same time.
1: Yeah, it's the whole deal.
2: I mean, it's like doing jumping jacks and putting effective fire on target. Can somebody crazy. do it? Probably. Can you do it consistently? No. no. You know, like. Like people would pay to see somebody jumping up down on a trampoline, you know, they get in that jumping pause, like your expiratory pause, where you breathe in, pause, breathe out, you know, with the jumping on the trampoline and be like, choo-choo, whoop, choo-choo, right, like, but nobody does that in combat, right? Yeah. You know, like, and I hear people use the example, well, like you used just a minute ago. Well, what if somebody comes around the corner in the middle of a tourniquet application and then I have to fire? Well, then fire, right? <laughs> but, but that's Again, wholly different. Like, what are you doing with your rifle or your pistol while you're putting a tourniquet on?
0: I guess I don't know. Not, like, not right? Uh,
2: yeah. Right. Like, yep. people game these things, having and they bring up these such odd what ifs. instances yeah. of what ifs that they back themselves into a corner with patient care, and then they can't get out of the argument. Mm-hmm. You know, like the, we'll just kneel on the pelvis. Okay. Like, carrying a CT machine around in your pocket. Because, like, I mean, my pelvis was fractured in eight places. And, like, if somebody had knelt on one or both sides of my pelvis where I was clearly bleeding from both iliac arteries, like, that would have been the end of me. So
1: we've we've been dancing around his injury (laughs) a bit. So (laughs) why don't we just... Play that hopscotch game, you lose. DJ, Sam, I'm talk glad you it. brought up
0: because you're like you're tight with James and you hang out with him all the time. Meanwhile, I'm over <laughs> here, like, how do you ask a guy, hey, how how what was it like getting blown up? You know, I just don't.
2: You just ask it. Yeah,
0: like that's a fair point,
2: right? Sometimes like, you just gotta ask, and he can right. tell
1: you to go, you know, pound sand. I'm not gonna tell you about it, or mm-hmm. he'd be like, yeah,
2: you know what? Yeah, I think it's therapeutic to talk about it. People like there are people that don't want to talk about. It. I don't know. I spent a lot of time at Walter Reed and saw a lot of people messed up. And I spent a lot of time in the OR doing anesthesia and scrubbed in as a second, third set of hands in the OR working on other wounded vets. And I thought it was all therapeutic. Like the best best thing for me was realizing that I still have a place. Yeah. You know, that missing a leg at the knee on one side and – I mean, when I made the joke about almost disarticulating me at the hip, like it has, it all but ripped my right leg off at the hip. Like I was split literally like that inguinal fold that we talked about in the class where the tourniquet, you're looking to put the tourniquet initially. Like I was split completely from the inside all the way up to literally the top of my femur. And the only thing holding it on was a muscle.
1: So talk us through how and that, like, how that, Took place. I mean, you were just on a nice walk smelling poppies. Yeah. Right? it's Afghanistan countryside the
2: thing to do? I had a glass of red wine, walked out the southern gate of the compound, like marijuana bushes as tall as the ceiling is here for 50, 75 yards. I mean, it was amazing. But w- had turned and was headed down an alleyway and stepped on a device that would change my life forever. Like I'd always uh, wondered, you know, what it'd be like in combat as a student. I think if you are in a combat arms field and haven't figured, haven't thought about what that's going to be like, you've probably chosen the wrong profession, hmm. right? Like, and then I was like, hmm, what's it going to be like to be deployed? Or what's going to be like to be on a team? What's going to be like to be deployed? What's going to be like, you know, this, that? Because I, I came in as an 18x ray in the Guard, in the National Guard, that is. 18x rays, a the enlistment option allows guys to come from the street straight into Special Forces. Hmm. thought about going to Ranger Regiment falling in my dad's shoes, and then I'm like, nope. At 30 years old, somebody pees on my, 18-year-old pees on my toothbrush. That's probably going to be the last time he pees on anything with his Current, current setup. Yeah, with mm-hmm. his current, with his current <laughs> hardware. <laughs> so anyway, so, so you know, like I would think about those things, and then the first time I deployed, I'm like, oh, well, so that's what that's like. And first time I heard, you know, whiz crack come past my head, I'm like, that's not too bad. <laughs> and then inevitably I'm like, I wonder what it's going to be like if I'm injured. And the only thing that I really concerned myself with was I knew how to take care of myself. Again, the only thing reasonable that somebody going to care for themselves out of their IFAC with, and it shouldn't be in their IFAC, it should be someplace they get to with both hands, but is their tourniquet, right? You're not going to pack your own wounds, put chest seals on yourself, you know, probably less than a tenth of a percent of guys in soft would ever put a needle in their own chest, and so, so I'm like, mm, wonder what's gonna be like when I have to care for myself the first time, or you know, so forth and so on. And then the only thing I was concerned with is not being a little bitch. Can we Keep leave that one. in? We'll we'll leave that. We'll one leave in. that one in. That okay. one, yes, because yeah. that
0: that makes the story. It's,
2: it's right, a very integral part. right. Like I don't want the dudes on the team, not to see me cry. Like, I give two new names about that. I'll probably cry at some point during the interview. Uh, that doesn't bother me in the least. But not being viewed as a warrior or going out like a punk yeah, would, oh, my gosh. That would be worse than, quite frankly, dying. Because, I mean, all but,
0: that time you've spent in training and in all everything that you would had up until that moment, I mean, that's all, like, a lot of it's trust-building. Oh, with abs- your team. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's almost, it's almost that much or more that you're putting into your team as you are putting into yourself. Right.
2: And you prepare them as much for combat as you prepare yourself. Yeah. As a medic. Like, you're re- not only responsible for the physical care, but psychological well-being. So, so walking to <laughs> taking the stroll with a glass of red wine in the marijuana fields of Khajur, Afghanistan, and uh, step on a device that would forever change me. No, I'm going to start crying. Severed uh, the device. Tossed me a little waist through the air. Severed my left leg about mid-tibia or mid, mid-shaft of the lower leg between the knee and the ankle. Tossed a good piece of that part of the leg up in a tree above me. That would later end up in my aid bag. Or part of it would end up in my aid bag Come back to the States. Uh, that You want to talk about clothes stinking? Clothes ain't got nothing on dead tissue. But so I hit the ground missing a leg on the left side. Uh, it blown a hole in the wall uh, adjacent to where I was walking down this alleyway or moving down this alleyway. And I looked down and missing a leg, I'm like, oh, oddly enough, it's not bleeding. But knowing that it would eventually bleed, I pulled out one tourniquet, started tightening it, the windlass broke. No. uh Yeah. Huh. It was not one made out of plastic for those that think the cat's made out of plastic. But... It was made out of metal it was made out of aluminum, shiny aluminum oh brittle aluminum yep t seventy seventy five uh good stuff, yeah, but my understanding from talking to one of the guys at Walter Reed who had been a metallurgist in a former career said that in a blast like that the the vibration of the a rock striking the aluminum at the right at the right spot caused a harmonic fracture hmm and a little bit of force just broke it. Anyway, pulled out a second one. Applied the second one in the same spot that I was trying to apply the first one. I didn't bother, meaning I didn't bother to take the first one off. I just grabbed the second one. You know, like we talked about today about the lassoing, trying to lasso your foot. That's not a good idea when you have a stump. Like the bone ends are very sensitive to things hitting them. Good to know. Yeah, don't so don't try I don't that at home. Like so, do you need a glass of water, Jimmy?
0: Uh, if I pass out, it's on Ryan. You got it. The rest, I'm, of
3: the I'm, I'm tracking,
2: I've got a lot of questions. So, this is
0: <laughs> <laughs> this is this
3: so, is, yeah,
2: yeah. So, tighten the second one down, stops the bleeding. I go to scoop myself back against the wall. Like, I had a uh, the Mark 13 300 Win Mag sniper rifle, uh, I'd made a set of backpack straps, and so I carried a Novesky. N4 upper on a government lower is my upper receiver. So I'd move back and forth between two different uppers, both sixteen inch, but based on, you know, what the what I was doing with it. I mean, Mm -hmm. a lot of people don't think that you can kill somebody with a five five six round, you know, at six, seven hundred meters. But I mean, the retained energy in that round is the same as a forty four magnum at point blank distance. I mean anyway. So that's what you got. That's what you have on you? Yeah. So I carried that as a battle battle rifle carbine if you will or carbine battle rifle if you will and then I'd have the mark 13 on my back anything I couldn't solve with the 16 inch off came the mark 13 and uh and then my aid bag was on over top of it and on the outside of the aid bag was an m320 grenade launcher anyway so all that crap still on my back I went to scooped myself back and I noticed there was a trail of blood after I started to scoop myself back that was eight nine ten inches wide and pretty consistent, meaning there wasn't, it wasn't like it was dropping or lightly pouring, it was pouring out of my pelvis. I stuck my hand in my pants. I'm like, this can't be good. Like, how much other things could go wrong today? This might be a little graphic, but it was like putting my hand in a bowl of, like, really smushed spaghetti noodles, like, kind of, like, just mush in warm marinara sauce. Like, that's kind of what it felt like, like, Very descriptive, right? So I'm like, well, this is horrible. That's
0: that's an understatement.
2: (laughs) I, uh, (laughs) like, tucked one hand underneath my perineum, took the other hand and just smashed everything I could down onto itself, you know, thinking I'm going to bleed to death right here from a major pelvic bleed. I heard my team sergeant moving down the alleyway in the direction that I just came from. And a huge no-no, like somebody gets blown up, do not take the path that guy just took because there may be another one, right? And the funny thing is, is where I got blown up, I'd crossed that ditch probably a hundred times over the last couple months of being there. Just didn't hit it in the right spot or the wrong spot.
1: Right. You think it had been there the whole time? Oh,
2: absolutely. Yeah. Like it was, I mean, we're only, I was probably 150 meters from where I slept every night. Do you know what it was? Uh, it was homemade explosives. Hmm. So I do just after rem- I left... Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, I was just I remember hearing
0: stories from, from family who had been over there, and they say that you look out over the fence, and you see children walking to and from whatever they're walking to and from, or even out playing, and they're hopping. Oh, and yeah. And they're bouncing all over, and, you, and you'd wonder, like, why are they doing that? Why are they going from that place to that place that way? I said, oh, they're jumping over
2: bombs. It's right. Well, I mean, during the seventies, late 70s, and up through 1988, I mean, we were involved in arming the Mujahideen against the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. And some of those items that we used were pot mines, the plastic ones that don't get picked up by uh, metal detectors. I mean, and those things didn't get—nobody pl- went, out, went out there like picking up dog turds.
3: And they didn't take inventory you know? and like,
2: we're, right. we're missing 31. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Yeah. Right. Was, we started with 108, and Euler. we got all but 31. you huh? Right. So uh, where was I? So he uh, comes running. He comes so he running, comes running up. Yeah. Cloud of dust from the blast and everything. He looks down, and he's like, holy bleep. Yep. Right? I'm like, Kurt, that's not reassuring. Like, you're supposed to reassure the patient, right, that they're going to be okay. That did not reassure me. So he goes to work, drops his stuff. Immediately goes to work, calls on the radio, like, guys. There was only a few of us Americans that were out uh, from the team. There was a couple EOD guys with us. Like, we'd been taking care of some UXO or unexploded ordnance from some RPGs and some other stuff that had been fired at us the night prior, the night i just gotten back to the team. Like, I was back with the team a day and got whacked again. So he gets to me. He starts working on me. He'd been a CAG medic.
1: Which is pretty much the highest evolution of
2: yeah. special operations oh, yeah. medics. Yeah. Okay. For Assault Madison, oh, absolutely. Yeah. So like he was. I was in the best good care. Hands. There's no other person in the United States I would want to have taken care of me in that moment. Maybe Matt Garrison. But aside from Matt Garrison, it, who's... We graduated, of course, he went to third group and then stayed like a year and went to CAG. And he's... He's a great medic, too. But aside from those two, like I'd rather have them than any surgeon that I've ever been worked on by. And I've, mm-hmm. after 113 surgeries, I've had a lot of people's hands in me. So anyway, so he starts working on me. It's clear I'm pretty jacked up and bleeding from a lot of places inside of me that he couldn't get to readily. I'll try to make this a little short because I could talk about this for days. But because I remember verbatim like the entire incident like there's n- right up till the right before the bird got there and i got snowed with some ketamine and there's a little hazy spot but up to that point uh, anyway so he's starts-
0: actually really impressive i i wouldn't expect that to be something oh, yeah. that somebody would say that they remembered it so well so oh yeah
2: yes mm-hmm. and i am very thankful that i remember it all yeah because i would not want to have gaps so anyway he starts uh packing some stuff. they get me packaged. pick me up like we we're talking about the kneeling thing, right like yeah. if Kurt had knelt on my pelvis, he would have completely separated it from my spine like oh my the gosh. center of my pelvis is called the symphys pubis. it was completely fractured one side where it attaches to my spine was fractured your pelvis if you look at x-rays just two big rings right yeah. down at the bottom like on the right side, I'm missing. Almost the entire ring to this day, held together with, you know, I say bailing wire, duct tape, and uh, I just call him Humpty Humpty Dumpty. Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it was titanium girdle. He has like a titanium mesh pelvis, basically. Yeah. So, easiest way to describe
2: it. Yeah. Like it moved, like when I'm in a classroom, you've not seen me teach yet, but like when I'm teaching, like I rock back and forth because it's almost like a nervous twitch kind of thing because I can feel my pelvis rock back and forth in the, springs. I can feel the vibration of the springs moving inside my pelvis.
1: Drop the mic.
2: Yeah. So, Oof. they picked me up, Put me, well, right before they picked me up, put me on a litter, there was a, the southern end of the compound was manned by Afghan special forces guys. Okay. And I'd gotten, like, I was one of those SF guys that wanted to spend time with host nation dudes. Like, I didn't get an SF because I thought that I was CAG light. I got an SF because I wanted to make a difference in other people's countries through unconventional warfare. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: And, like, I knew exactly what I was getting into. And so every night I would go down and talk to the Afghans. I spent every morning with them, with their one medic, teaching him how to do sick call medicine for his own guy so he can take care of them. Like, he'd come up and watch me do the same thing for my guys. Like, great relationship. I took Fidney FDNY T-shirts for every rotation and gave away either Yankees hats or Fidney T-shirts to the Host Nation guys. Like That's I've got, cool. I've got more, like, Afghan paraphernalia hats and clothing and man dresses that have been given to me, and, like, nobody else on the team got anything. They're like, mm-hmm. why didn't I get something? I'm like, you've been playing Xbox for eight months. <laughs> like, I'm down there drinking some nasty tea and – drinking milk from a goat's stomach you know but anyway so this guy the medic was manning the 50 cal on the compound so he hops off runs over to me and stand like i'm like crouched like laying semi-recumbent position and i look up and here's an afghan and a pair of bvds and a pair of adidas slip on like shower shoes yeah like the tunnel ones you know what i'm saying like that's the only thing he's wearing: a pair of BVDs and that set of shower shoes. He reaches <laughs> down, grabs me by the belt and underneath the neck, and snatches my backside up and put me on the litter. They run, literally, f- with four dudes on the litter and Kurt dragging that, <laughs> dragging my aid bag, rifle, and uh, carbine, and uh, to the compound. And then as soon as they get me inside, they throw me on a Polaris Ranger six wheeler. Yeah go screaming up through the middle of the compound to t- close to the front gate. That way when the helicopter landed, they didn't have such a far way to, <laughs> to carry me. And so they picked me up off the back and set me down. Well, the kid, we had some infantry guys that were manning the compound with us. We, they were called Uplift. Uh, they were basically attached to us and they'd go out on missions and pull guard duty and do all kinds of stuff. Great dudes. Kid was so nervous that he put the six wheeler in reverse and backed the rear set of tires up over me. No, no. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Are you serious? I, oh yeah, yeah. I'm like, what else can go wrong today? <laughs> what like part this, of you? Yeah, it. My chest and legs. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like one of the team guys I mean, is they, like trying to like he like sees this happening and like throws himself forward onto the back of the Polaris and like braces. He's like, hey, hey. And the dude turns around like this. Oh, I'm sorry, and he's trying to get it back down in gear and uh, out of reverse and in the in the forward, and eventually pulls off of me. But uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, it was. <laughs> I mean, you talk about the dude not coming up and kneeling on your
0: pelvis. I mean, you right. almost had a razor in your pelvis, right? Uh, and, not more, like a yeah, a sh- and not like a not like a Dollar
1: yeah. Shave
2: Club razor. Yeah, uh, Harry's. I'd yeah. prefer to Harry. He's oh, like I'm as sorry. hard to
1: kill as those zombies
2: in the simulator. I mean, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> hey, anyway. So, I'm laughing at this time. I'm like, really? Like, what else could possibly go wrong? Don't ask. Please don't ask. Yeah, yeah. So, luckily, things kind of went smoothly after that. Like, you know, I had had a morphine syrette. I tried to give myself some morphine, but then, you know, through talking to Kurt and whatnot, like, I got sideways and stuck the morphine syrette distal to the tourniquet. So, now that all the morphine's trapped in the leg with the tourniquet above it, right? Not doing any good. Oh, you know, I'm like, why is this morphine not working? And then I'm like, oh, you're a jackass. You put it this little tourniquet. You know, I'm like, huh? That's that mechanical piece we talked about this morning, right? Like yeah. being able to control, right? So then I, so then I grab a fentanyl lollipop and I go to sucking on a fentanyl lollipop. Like uh, it is absolutely what it sounds like. It's almost like a, lo- it's a lollipop. That's what I'm, we call them. All right, submucosal lancing. But you're supposed to stick it in the cheek. And just let it dissolve, right? What is it? Um, This is just a true ignorance showing. What does fentanyl do? Fentanyl is a narcotic. Okay, got it. That is ten times stronger than morphine.
1: Heavily abused (laughs) on the streets of America. Oh, okay.
2: yeah, yeah. There's that, too. Yeah. So I got all excited uh, because I had some pain meds and, like, ended up, like, chewing the fentanyl (laughs) off the lollipop and swallowing it, which does no good. Oh. I'm like, this thing's not working. You know, Kurt's like, that's the second one you've chewed up. (laughs) you know and <laughs> it so, absorb absorbed through them so once it yeah. gets into gi it doesn't yeah. do anything Not you got to no. take it okay yeah, yeah. Uh, like it, it will a little bit but it it's not as not the same delivery not, yeah not the same delivery like transmucosal or through your cheek is it like a few minutes ago before we started like i folded something up and stuck yep. in my tongue like that's how i take pain meds now yep. okay and it it's pretty quick the only problem is I, i've taken it so much like it's like taking an aspirin now but i guess aspirin's better than nothing So, yeah. anyway, they get me to the front, Kurt's continuing to work on me, like I'm taking stuff, like they lay the aid bag down to the right of me, I'm pulling stuff out of my aid bag, handing it to Kurt, while he's caring for me, I'm spiking IV bags, like... You're just, you're totally understating the level-headedness that you
0: had in this scenario, because, I mean, you just got blown up. And also ran over. I mean, <laughs>
2: like clearly that was the he's harder Wily part. coyote,
0: and he's over there, and he's over <laughs> there, like, oh yeah. I mean, Players, can, Rangers said, "Can you imagine being?" My mom's like, <laughs> "Can you imagine being in the ER?" Well, yeah, doctor, I suggest you use this one. I mean, <laughs> I mean that,
2: we'll talk about that in a few minutes. Okay, because it we go there. So <laughs> some of the guys come over, and like I'm still wearing my my kit, and like I wasn't one of the like SF guys that liked a bunch of pouches attached to my armor. So I always wore slick armor and would put a chest rig over top of it. That way uh, it was a whole lot easier to change the chest rig if I was, you know, manning, a, like carrying the scar heavy or something with 7.62 mags instead of 5.56 mags and be like five minutes before the mission trying to change magazines on my, magazine pouches on my kit. And I also looked at it like if I have to, literally run down one of these guys up the mountain i'm not going to do it in 150 pounds of armor and other kit right yeah so i wanted to be able to drop the armor piece and leave the fighting loadout the exact same Hmm. and so i just wore a oddly enough (laughs) Kurt called it my mogadishu throwbacks it was a black plate carrier just like you would see like the not just like those, but in uh, Black Hawk Down, but it was black. And then I'd, I had a green recce chest rig that I wore over top of it yeah. anyway. And so when I'd just gotten back, like I had a new, uh, new GPS and some new gadgets that I'd picked up when I was uh, on my way back to the team from the previous incident where I'd gotten injured – And one of the guys, the intel sergeant on the team, he noticed that I had a new GPS that was newer than his and not to be undone. He's like, hey, man, I need that more than you do. I'm like, first of all, you're not going out on missions like I am. And so you're not getting it. And so he took the opportunity once I was injured. Like he leans over and he goes, hey, man, you're not using that GPS anymore, are you? (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> casting lots for his clothes. I mean, that's, got,
2: that's a familiar oh, yeah. story so, through history. Yeah. Oh. So, so, I, so I pull out the GPS, and it was an E-TREX, like a 2012 Series e Like, it was the first co- full-color model E-TREX, which was high-speed in 2012. Heck, yeah. And I'm like, yeah, man, you can have it. The whole face of it's completely crushed from <laughs> something in the blast hitting it. Like, I'm surprised all my stuff didn't fall at the bottom of my chest rig, because that thing is was as tore up as my bottom end was. And, like, dudes are like, hey, man, let me get them PMAGs. And, like, I never got my PMAGs all back. Like, they still, like, pass the blame about who took all my PMAGs. But, you know. Just a bunch of ants. Filthy yeah. Oh, yeah, scavengers. They were. Literally. Well,
1: Just the vultures of war. <laughs> right.
2: I'm like, I know what you guys are doing. You're trying to keep my mind off of the situation, right? Get me engaged in something other than. Yeah, some banter, which right, I'm sure you're used to. right? And, like, we had a dude there. He was a former 10th group. Intel guy, and he was working on the computer, si- the, the computer system that we use for intelligence stuff. And he came out, and he's kneeled down. He's holding my hand. He's like holding it, like rubbing it, like I'm an eighty year old woman with congestive heart failure. And uh, I had to run him off because he was bothering. Me. Like he was crying, like straight up crying. I can't believe this happened to you. I'm like, this happened to me. Why are you crying? Like, <laughs> I mean, I'm the dude missing parts and pieces. Anyway. So they finally get me, like, bandaged up as best possible, and I eventually lean up up to Kurt while he's working diligently on my pelvis still, packing 12 rolls of combat gauze in my pelvis. He
1: neglected to describe the fact that it was a 6-inch hole that was blasted. Well,
2: I didn't figure that out. Was that where all that blood was pouring out of then? Yeah, yeah. Okay, that makes sense. It split me from my, uh, probably an inch in front of my anus. Sure. To all the way up front to the base of my penis.
0: There's already like a perforation there, for right. stuff to start splitting. I mean, it just
3: makes right. It- and that right. was it's that a- was the seam at the split. Yep. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Except it didn't go up the split. It just kind of blew a hole straight up. Like I lost uh. the twins in the divorce. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Got it. Yep. Um, so. But uh, I mean, the rest of it's okay. Like, I made a couple jokes earlier today in the class about how many surgeries can you have on one percent of your total body surface area. <laughs> 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 you know, like uh, out of 113, like seven of them have just been on my penis. <laughs> um, you said it, and with dramatic pause, <laughs> with dramatic pause. <laughs> <laughs> but it's I mean, but the, the point, it's right? but <laughs> like, like you got to put that stuff out together. You know, like. Yeah, it was like even going into that, but that's a whole funny story by itself. Anyway, so Kurt's working on me. I lean up, grab him by the 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 shirt sleeve on his combat uniform, and I pull him towards me because I couldn't lean up any further. Mm. Right, like every time I went to move, like I could feel stuff moving in my pelvis, and I'm like, that can't be good. So I'm like, thank God nobody knelt on my pelvis um, before I got run over by the six (laughs) by (laughs) six.
1: <laughs> but would you rather?
2: But, uh, yeah, right. So, so anyway, so he leans forward, and I'm like, "Hey, dude, I, I gotta have something for pain. I can't like, I'm like maxed out. Like, I, I, I don't have a whole lot more in me. Like, I know I'm, you know, like all things to the contrary, it looks like I'm having a good time, but I'm, I'm not having a good time here. And I need something for pain. He's like, "All right, man, let me get finished here. He goes, "I will as soon as I can get your narcs out, I'll snow you. And so I didn't have another medic on the team, and it was just Kurt and I. And as the team sergeant, Kurt's responsibility to the team was far greater than just being a medic. Mm. And so I took as much of the medic piece off of him as he would allow. Like, we'd go out on missions, he'd still carry an aid bag. And so when we got our narcotics, I just naturally split split them up amongst me and Kurt. That way, no matter where he was, where I was, both of us had narcotics with which to treat people if the time come. But after he gave me after, so I got a sternal IO started. That's a like a hard needle that is spring loaded that punches itself into your sternum. Why not make another hole? Right. Yeah. Okay. Like it really didn't hurt. Like it's pressure. That was the third one I'd had in my sternum. Not that day, but as the third sternal IO I had I'd had uh, across my time being injured. Yeah. Clearly, multiple occasions. Like you, Black Cloud, like stuff just happens. Always in combat, but it happens nonetheless. So he snows me, and I'm like, oh, that's a little warm feeling. And then things get a little hazy for a few minutes. And I remember the guys talking. They're like, my team leader comes running up. And when you give somebody ketamine, they turn gray, right? It's natural. And a lot of medics get disconcerted when they see it because they're not accustomed to it and the team leader comes running up. He had just called to get a status on the helicopter, which was delayed because there were other guys that needed the helicopter more than hell or needed to be medevaced more than I did. And so that got waved up, waved off a couple times. But so they got a, a status update on the helicopter. Team leader comes running outside and he sees me laying there all gray. He's like, what the heck just happened? He was talking 30 seconds ago. How'd you kill him? You know, like the Kurt. Kurt's like, I didn't kill him. I snowed him. He's, not feeling any pain now, and I wasn't. So take me down to the bottom of the hill, helicopter lands. The guys, like, all huddled around me, said a quick prayer, and loaded me uh, in a in a Air Force Pavlo uh, with some PJs who mm-hmm. took me to Terankau, Afghanistan, where I was 14 days, 6 hours, and 8 minutes earlier. So roll in, like, the same ER staff that was there two weeks prior, greeted me at the door. And so as they're rolling me back, it's like any other emergency room, you know, like last name, last four uh, of your social, date of birth. And so they get to, uh, they all remember my name, just not the other information. Clearly made a mark on them when I was there for the first time. And so I'm like, <laughs> they're like, well, oh, how much How much do you weigh? You know, so I lifted my leg up off the table and I'm like, well, it was 245 this morning, but you could probably call it a square 185 now and just laid the leg back down. <laughs> so the SEAL Command Master that is a Chief... How do you answer that question? That's right. a tough one, yeah. Command Master Chief is like, oh, my God. He's like, why aren't you a SEAL? And I, that's when I pulled my hat up, and I'm like, because I don't have good hair. You know, yeah. and he's like, he's like, well, he's like, I'm bald, too. You know, and I'm like, well, that joke doesn't work then. Damn it. But <laughs> so the the ER in Tarankow, Afghanistan is... Literally about twice the size of this room that we're in. And the big piece that separates the sterile operating room from the non sterile ER is a sheet. Hmm. And uh, so we have some, we exchanged some pleasantries with the orthopedic surgeon uh, that put my left leg back together last time. And he's like, hey, we're going to take you back to the OR now so we can get started fixing you because you're bleeding a death still and comforting yeah right comforting reassuring the, death, the so. patient right right yeah. Yeah. yeah like we talked about that today a little bit yeah you were there for that I think I was I'm just a reassuring person in general well, yeah you got that kind face yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, so they roll me back until so like I learn over my shoulder and I'm like hey doc I'm like, don't put me to sleep until you tell me exactly what's wrong with me. I'm like, I want to know what the uh, is wrong with me. He goes, okay. He goes, rest assured. He goes, he goes, I'll let you know. So I'm like, oh, I'm gonna relax for a second. And then I remember thinking, what is that silver thing? And then my mouth opens, and I'm like, I can't move my mouth or anything else. They had paralyzed me and was what we call RSI, or rapid sequence intubation, induction, where like they paralyze you and put a laryngoscope in your mouth so they can put a breathing tube down your neck so that they can start working on you. Hmm. And they forgot to give me the retrograde amnesic that allows you not to remember seeing those things. And I'm like, oh, so that's what that looks like. And then I went to sleep and woke up at Walter Reed 11 days later how about that in a <laughs> icu at walter reed being taken taken care of by a cat lady covered in a trash bag tied down to the bed like oh my goodness it was bad it was horrible well yeah so what? and then so i went from terankal yeah to kandahar to bagram to germany to walter reed and when i was in so they worked on me for a little bit t- and tk couldn't stop the bleeding so how
1: many, how many units of blood did you get?
2: I've, I've had 66 in total. I had six at TK. Then when I got to Kandahar, I went to the OR twice. And between those two trips, had 20 units.
3: We talk about the importance of donating blood. This is a good one.
2: Yeah, L- yes. it absolutely yep. is. like The blood bank at TK, at Tarenkow, the roll three there, uh, meaning that's the size of the hospital, that's what... That's all that means, so, and they had to, one of the nurses from the OR had to walk across the street to Camp Brown, where the uh, SF command is there in Kandahar, and told our battalion command, James is on the table, and he's going to bleed to death unless we get 20 volunteers. Yeah? Yep. How about that, yeah? Clearly, they got volunteers, so, I'm not sure I'd have volunteered for me, but. Um, You're worth I'm just it, kidding. Buddy. That's amazing. Yeah, it's. I mean, that that was all the easy part. The hard part was the next seven weeks of being prostrate in a hospital bed. The only time I moved was to go into the OR table and back to the bed. Like I was covered in a trash bag from my nipple line down. Had 19 wound vacs that were like little like suction devices sucking f- bad fluid off of every part of my body that was open. It baffles me that we have... One,
0: it ba- still baffles me that you survived all of that and, I mean, made it through that. So I don't even know what to tell somebody, but, like, kudos. I'll just say that as, like, understatement of the year. But then also it just baffles me how much technology and devices and just know-how and whatever it is that we have. To, I mean, you're bringing up devices that are designed to suck bad fluids off of your body. I mean, just the things that we have in place are... It's incredible mm-hmm. how we can bring or keep somebody alive and bring them back to the I, I, to fully operational. I mean, you know, you walk around today and you brought you brought up going into Deer Valley Lodge. I mean, the person didn't even know that but, you had you know your prosthetic leg and all that stuff. I mean, most it, people it's have incredible. no idea. It's incredible.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's a term that they I've heard used more recently. I guess the last little bit on the joint trauma
2: when joint trauma symposium. Yeah, or are you talking about the JTS? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: And they were talking about a a ranger that was blown up in a really serious way, triple amputee. And they used the term burden of survivorship. And I was, it really kind of s- like made me sit down and think because I was like, "Yeah, here guys are coming off the battlefield as warfighters. Forever changed in a split second. And now we have the technology and the medics are so good. Like those ranger medics or Kurt oh, or, yeah. you know, like they're so good and they are taught so well. They are able to keep a guy alive that at any other point in it our history would have would not have survived. Right, and now you have this whole burden of survivorship for his family, for him, like adjusting to this totally radically different quality of life. Mm-hmm. And how do you? I mean, it's. Cr- I mean, James obviously was you know terribly injured. He's a case study for you know that kind of pelvic injury and everything else, and and there's guys that have been hurt even worse that are that are alive today because of the quality of the medicine but it's you know it's the after part that you know that's the the surviving part is almost like the bottom of the mountain like Justin Lassic you know my oh, friend yeah. was a yeah. you know, double amputee at, from 10th group last year and you know you're sitting there staring at the bottom looking up going okay though
2: where does the rebuilding start mm-hmm. is the question yeah Right, like mentally, psychologically, physically, spiritual. I mean, like it's a huge piece. And you you said it perfectly. Like I would not have survived the blast if that took place in two thousand one. I'd have been dead because guys weren't carrying tourniquets then.
1: Yeah, I mean, and they didn't have the practice. I mean, the evolution of the global war on terror is our medics went from going with korea vintage supplies and training because that was you know and vietnam vintage supplies and training because that was sure. the major last major conflict that they had been in so all the medical doctrine was based on that to now this unconventional warfare in afghanistan yeah and iraq it's somewhat conventional a lot of unconventional but the advance and knowledge on how to treat those kinds of injuries was just like leapfrogging just like the technology like yep whether it's your rifle optics that you guys build here, the technology leaps are, you know, it's almost exponential each generation. And the same thing happened with battlefield medicine. It just was accelerating so quickly because so many guys were getting hurt. Yeah,
3: and that well, was that was my huge point of fascination. Like, it went from treating crushes and gunshot wounds to now IEDs. Yeah. Like I, a totally different thing.
2: Well, we mentioned in the class, like, aside from the, you know, my work at NAR, like, I work for... Like, I'm building the medical program for field craft survival. And I taught a class this last week called Critical Instant Aid Course. And a part of it, like, we talk about the change in battlefield medicine and how, post the Mogadishu incident, when tactical combat casualty care became the focal point of reimagining warrior ethos to everybody in the military, where up to Mogadishu, somebody got injured, they yelled medic. Medic came, you know, running forward and rendered whatever aid they could. But he would, he and or she were the only ones on the battlefield that were doing medicine. Yeah. And the biggest change is that everybody is capable of saving their own life as well as others, like self-aid and buddy-aid. And now... When that all started, the number one cause of death on the battlefield was bleeding to death from an extremity injury, Mm -hmm. which was the catalyst for, really, tourniquets taking off. And then the second leading cause of death was tension pneumothorax, which is air pressure inside of the chest wall but outside of the lung, pushing on the lungs and the heart, trying to shove them over to one side. And then the last one was airway compromise. And so, come... The end of twenty eleven, Special Operations Command Ranger Regiment in particular had gotten so had spent so much time doing medical training with infantry dudes from the unit, from Ranger Regiment. That is that bleeding to death from an extremity wound wasn't happening, Hmm. and uh, right now they're not losing people to preventable death, but to things like DCBI or dismounted complex blast injury, like what injured me. And the tools needed to care for those people aren't just as simple as put a tourniquet on it. You know, yeah. like wound packing is a, is a simple skill, but it takes a lot of practice to be good at it. And as Madison, uh, the other piece I was going to, I wanted to talk about briefly with respect to your question is the biggest place it's changed is everything that we do is science-based, evidence-based. There's no, I think this is a good idea, so let's try this until it kills somebody, and then we'll try something else, right? Like, EMS worked on that model, I would, not specifically, but, like, there was a bunch of stuff they did because that's just the way they did it, not because they had any evidence, peer-reviewed documents, studies to support how it was done. I mean, one of the biggest differences, I would say, was... And some places are still struggling with this is not giving IV fluids to patients that have bled out, right? Like, the big push now is to carry blood on ground transport EMS units because the military has proven that giving blood works. Well, Hmm. the military proved that in the Civil War. I mean, they were taking blood out of guy A, putting it in guy B, and saving people's lives, and then, right there, and right, and then in World War II, the exact same thing all over again, right? It's like we got to continuously learn these, relearn, or re-learn yeah. these, these things, and I mean, the tourniquet pieces has been huge, you know. The body armor
1: advancements in body armor has helped a lot.
2: Oh yeah, like I would have died several like trips before when I got blown up from being shot without the advent of body armor but what you're seeing now is in the civilian market and when i was teaching earlier today and when i you know when i teach for nar whoever i'm whoever i'm teaching for i make it a point to point out that just because the military is doing it doesn't make that the answer for everything Mm -hmm. right like Tactical Combat Couches Care came around. Like, we saved a whole bunch of lives with tourniquets, chest seals, and being able to open an airway and position a patient appropriately and then keep them warm to the public safety industry, or law enforcement in particular, going, well, if that's saving soldiers' lives, why aren't we doing some of that? You know, now you got law enforcement officers carrying tourniquets and having IFACs or individual first aid kits on them during the duty day instead of leaving it in the door of their car which is always a funny, you leave your tourniquet in the door of your car. Well, I've never needed it before. And I'm like, oh, how many people have you shot? Well, I've never shot anybody. Why don't you leave your pistol in the car then? (laughs) That's a good point.
0: That
3: is is an excellent
2: point. And so with the active shooter piece and the civilian folks getting injured, like just because the military was successful at it doesn't mean that's the solution for the civilian industry. And I, I say that to say this. Like we started a, there's the stop the bleed program, right? That program should technically be called stop the tension pneumothorax program. Right. Kids in school shootings aren't dying from extremity trauma, and it isn't because they're not, and they're not not dying because of tourniquets being applied. It's because they're getting shot center mass or shot in the head. And while one is a survivable issue, tension pneumothorax, being shot in the head is not, generally speaking. Right. I'm a pretty good medic, but I can't fix that problem in the field. And neither could a neurosurgeon. But what we can do is stop focusing on what the military has specifically done to stave off extremity hemorrhage or death from extremity hemorrhage overseas and law enforcement here and recognize that kids aren't dying, you know, in active shooter incidents, people aren't dying from extremity injuries, by and large. They're dying from tension pneumothorax and uh, other penetrating just, trauma yeah. to their chest and major, abdomen. Major yeah.
1: trauma from almost contact shot.
2: As, as instructors, so.
3: is is that a hard one to teach, though, just considering, like, the mechanisms involved? Like, do they make a good model, a good dummy, or a good course that you can practice that
2: fix? Oh, yeah. The, like chest seal application? Yep, yep. Where, yep. Does,
3: where does a person even look? Obviously, besides where you two work and what you do. Like, is this, I've never seen that in anything that I've done. I've done very little, but I've never seen
2: that dummy. I've never seen that, that aid, that. It isn't so much the dummy. It's recognizing where the, where you need to put them. Like you can use any mannequin, like you could buy a mannequin to put clothing on Mm -hmm. and practice on. Right. Like as long as it's anatomically correct, mostly like it'll work out. You're just talking about between the super sternal notch at the top of the sternum and the belly button, any hole that communicates inside of the chest Between those two gets a vented chest seal put over it, right? But, like, some folks have gotten so wrapped around the whole, like, stop the bleed program that they're completely missing the mark on that piece and, frankly, ignoring that people are dying from other problem Mm -hmm. sets, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So you asked about the biggest change, and I would offer that everybody has now has this one-size-fits-all solution to whatever ails you. And that's the military model of medicine. And there's a lot of good stuff that's being done. The blood program piece is great. Plenty of people saved every year because they've gotten blood where otherwise they wouldn't have, you know, years before.
1: And tourniquets and, do and, save lives on the yeah, civilian side. I mean, right? They law, do. law enforcement officers are, con- we, you know, we have a constant stream of thank yous, you know, thank yous of officers using it and civilians using it for ex- extremity bleeds, whether it's, you know, we just had, one where a piece of rebar fell off, you know, in an industrial like warehouse, they had rebar stacked up, it fell off, went right through the lady's leg and you know, tourniquet application saved her. So there's I think the big thing on the civilian side is to be open to the idea that it's not just the military model cuz civilians for the most part, I mean it's a little bit different right now in certain cities, are not wearing plates and body armor,
0: right? So right.
1: Kids at school aren't sitting there wearing flak jackets. When they get shot, they're getting shot in places that... Don't have body
2: armor covered. Don't have
1: bar- body armor. Where the military guy gets shot there and he keeps fighting because that's covered by a ceramic plate. And-
0: okay. So Understood. it's a, it's
1: kind of a really... I mean, it's a... I'm not going to go into the details no, of that not- stuff. It's just a, it's a sad reality we, we live in. Like, I have kids, you know. He has a daughter. I have one in kindergarten and one in the seventh grade. This year, of course, everybody's been at home, so it hasn't, you know, school shootings have not been a big, pro- you know, they haven't been in the public eye like they were because nobody's been at school. But you know, like last year, like Jonah had a plate of soft armor and it slid into his backpack. I'm like, because he had an active shooter threat at his school one day, and I was like, Jonah, you know how to use a tourniquet, you know how to put on a chest seal, you know how to use a pressure dressing. They're in your backpack, <laughs> and. Here's a plate of soft armor. Mm-hmm. That can at least give you a chance. Like put your backpack on like right, teenage mutant ninja turtle and run. Sure. Keep Makes keep your head down, you know. But it's a weird conversation to have with your kids.
3: That's what, yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, you know, I, I don't know if we ever have lived in a utopian world where these things can't happen. Yeah. You know, and now it's recently just coming to light. Kind of a kind of a bummer, but
1: yeah. but it's I mean, it got to the point where John didn't even know. You know, he he forgets he probably doesn't have. I went to he went to use his backpack for fishing the other day, and I was like, hey, dude, you don't need soft armor to go fishing. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> buddy, been weighing you down.
2: Depends on where you're fishing.
1: yeah, yeah no, no, I mean,
2: <laughs> uh, what you're fishing for? and who you're fishing with. Some yeah. people on their back. Cast. People are pretty you, territorial
1: about their fishing spots. I
2: tell you. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Was that directed at somebody? N- myself. Are
1: you a wild? Are you a Do you fly fish dad. everywhere? I,
0: well, I, <laughs> <laughs> Tell you what, that's funny. I got a lot of tree bass.
1: Tree bass, yeah. I've caught woodfish.
0: Yeah, woodfish. I like plenty that. of them, man. So that's the story. That's a hell of a story. Kind of yeah. leaves you like. Huh. I also we're talking. We're talking. <laughs> where, of where do we go from there? Yeah, where do we go from there? Life of a life of a special operations medic. Maybe is that, um, that That's the might second not...
1: life of a special operations medic in his case. I mean, as of tomorrow.
0: Seriously, yeah.
1: I... A-, a live day, Veterans Day is coming up here in a couple of weeks. Whew. Stacking them up.
3: I got to say the thing that, yeah. that really gets me the most is that when you think about um, like practitioners, doctors, nurses, uh, combat medics like yourself, they never just retire, right? You don't get out of it. Like a really good practitioner, it's the last thing that they do well and it's been how long since the injury 20,
2: 2012 okay. It'll be 8 years and and tomorrow.
3: you're you're still you're still doing the thing
1: mhm he went back on active duty after that yeah yeah I, and I took a couple
2: trips
3: when jim had asked like what got you into it it was always i was always there it was never it was never not a part of you like yeah. born into it cellular structure yeah it is yeah
2: well like i still like i'm a volunteer firefighter yeah like i've Put on gear, fight the fire on the inside, Burned up a couple prosthetics in the process. (laughs) Like, I'm on my 12th. Are you really? $100,000 a piece. Like, I keep breaking them. Like, they can't keep up with me. Right. But. Shocker. Yeah. (laughs) Went, Went skydiving, trying to, you know, like, get that, exercise those muscles and left the aircraft and. Because of the way the new prosthetics are built, like it's all sensors, right? Yep. So it knows when there's a certain amount of pressure pushing the the ankle backwards and it will literally lock the piston down so that it can't bend. So I leave the aircraft, you know, kinda like sideways and as soon as I get went to get flat and I start in this flat spin, right? And I'm like, Uh oh. There's there. this is not right. <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm not that bad out of practice. Come on. And, uh oh, it was a solo jump too. Uh, yeah. Oh, right yeah, yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you ru- so your rudder sticking out. Yeah. So I got a rudder <laughs> dragging me around in a circle back there, and I ended up rolling like rolling over on my side, almost got to my back, and it let go, and I peeled it around, and then rolled back over, and I was good to go. But yeah, it's you know, at, like the times that I jumped after that, I always jumped with a with a non robotic leg. It yeah. was just a mechanical leg that would yeah. fold underneath me. Wow. But then when I land, I land with my le- one leg out and land on one foot and then just put the other foot down. So And
3: you just doing that? it live. Jump out of the plane. Who the hell knows what happens when that shoot pops and you're about to hit the ground? Like, let's yep. see what shakes out.
2: Yeah.
3: Land on one foot.
2: Yep,
3: Right on, man. Figured
2: it out on the way to the ground. Hey, you got the rest of your life to figure it out anyway. Right. So hell yeah. Might as well enjoy life while you're, you know. Wow. I've like not changed. you always just been this calm and collected then. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, I d- that's funny. But I just mean when I let's say I've not changed, like I'm the the enemy is not going to defeat me. Right. The only person that can defeat me is me.
3: Right. Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, so I mean whether I mean I wasn't laid in a bed for six weeks, seven weeks. Uh, started walking. Walked a quarter mile the first time I took my steps. Like it literally beat the end of my leg up.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, for just the tissue pounding on the tissue. Because I'm a TK or a through-knee amputee, meaning all they did was cut my kneecap and the two lower leg bones away. I have the full length of my femur, um, which as a short guy is difficult because I don't have a lot of space for a prosthetic underneath me. So when I'm resting in the socket, that so there's a carbon fiber piece that attaches to the leg, and that's the interface between me and the prosthetic kind of like a little wetsuit material you put over the limb and then your leg just slides down into the socket. Well, I literally sit in the bottom of the socket. So when I step, there's pressure on the end of my leg just like there is on the end of your femur when it makes contact with the tibia and the fibula. So, but, yeah, I beat that thing. It was like I took the leg off, went to take the sleeve off, and it just poured blood out of the bottom of it. My physical therapist is like, Oh my God! Would you please take it easy? <laughs> like, wait till the tissue matures, and then you can go full speed. Yeah, I'm like, I ain't got time to slow down. Ain't got time you know? for that. Nope. you do a, I
1: Ain't got time you, for that. Like when I first met you, back when I did the T Triple C course at NAR. However, was that like eight years ago?
2: Almost. Yeah, it was. I mean, mm-hmm. it was right after you
1: got. It would have been like 2014. Was, yeah. Yeah. So it, it was. Been...
2: Uh, I just come back from my first trip. Yep. Hadn't you just
1: just run a marathon?
2: Uh, I ran the Army 10-miler that year. Okay. I ran the Marine Corps marathon the next year. That's badass. Never been a runner. 240 pounds is not a a runner at 5'8 make. That's a bowling ball. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like I'm strong and fast, but I'm not steady. (laughs) Like, you know, but I told myself, I'm like, I'm going to run a marathon. Not because I want to, but because I can. Right on. And then... I've not run that much since. (laughs) I'm like, check that block. What's next? Before I ask my next question, have you ever piloted an aircraft? No. Okay, so aside from that... No, that's not accurate either. I have taken the stick and rudder, but I didn't take it off the ground or put it back on the ground. Okay, got Okay, so aside from like, you know, start to finish piloting an aircraft,
0: was there anything on the ground that you didn't do when you were in and you were doing what you were doing that you were like,
1: Man, that would have been cool. Yeah, if there a bucket, like, what's on your bucket list? You yeah, I mean, you got to do, you
0: said you were sniper qualified, you said that you, uh, I'm a medic, you were, you know, using carbine, you're doing intelligence stuff, so you're calling in, calling so- in airstrikes. So qualified, as was a J- JTAC qualified. That's bad, pretty badass right there. It, was there anything where you're like, man, that guy's got a cool job, but I, I haven't done that.
2: No, like, I was pretty satisfied, you know, like, if I wanted to go do something... Like, I was happy in SF. Like, I enjoyed it. Yeah. I certainly, like, had found what I was built for. Yeah. You know, like, I believe people are purpose-built, just like machinery. Um, some people might not know what that is, but... Or know what their purpose is. But I I had found mine, and it was to make difference in other people's lives. And I just chose to do it wearing a uniform with an aid bag and a carbine. So... Right on. um, and now I do it teaching and passing on the lessons that that I learned the hard way in combat, whether it's some of the tips and tricks that I passed on to you guys today about tourniquet application and how to short cycle the having a whole bunch of different techniques for different types of tourniquet applications to the wound packing to pressure points on the body based on. Known locations where the artery passes, either underneath something or past Not something in the shallow. Those. Not a fan. Good to know. He acts like I hurt him or something. <laughs> so to like being a being a medic on a SWAT team for a sheriff's office back home. Yeah, you know, still do entries, still teach tactics, CQB, long distance stuff. I mean, dude, you stay busy, man. Yeah. I got to cool. keep something, like, my brain's got to be constantly, like, moving at 100 miles an hour. Like, I can't, I'm afraid if I stop, I won't get started again. You know, it's like that physics, uh, an object at rest will remain at rest until I act upon by greater force. Object in motion will remain in motion until I act upon by equal or greater force. So it's going to take a force greater than an IED to stop, because clearly, like, they've tried to put force on you already. Yeah. I have, I have people tell me all the time, like, you know, that may have been God the first time he got blown up telling you maybe you need to take it easy. I'm like, well, clearly I didn't listen. Uh, and clearly I didn't get this in on the second go-round either, so I don't know what he's going to have to do. You know, it's like that joke that people say about, like, the guy that's on the roof, uh, the hurricane, and people come by on a boat, and then there's a helicopter comes by, and he's like, I'm waiting. Je- Jesus is going to save me, you know, and then he drowns, and he's like, Jesus, I thought you were going to save me, and he goes, us I sent a, a, a raft, uh, a coast guard boat, and a helicopter after you. What more do you want? You know, like. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I just I enjoy. I'm enjoying life. You know, I've right always on. enjoyed life, but I think I have a different aspect maybe on it than some people. So mm. it's right like on. that. Freedom has a taste. The protected will never know. I certainly think That's that that boy. life has a taste. Those who've tasted death have a. Understanding of that not a lot of other people do. Yeah. How close to the edge you can live without, you know, and suffering you, permanent damage. <laughs> yeah. Because clearly this isn't permanent damage.
0: And you know a little bit of that taste, but all, and it's, it's something where you almost think to yourself, like sometimes you wish other people could taste it, but at the same time you couldn't necessarily wish that on somebody, you know? So that's, that's also a weird feeling.
2: Yeah it is you know like I share it with my daughter all the time like we'll talk about about what tomorrow means and like where she is in life and how that relates and like what she should take away from my service and she can't that can't be an excuse for her I don't want her to join the military I mean I'll be right up front like I'd be hard-pressed I think to like have a good career in the military today because I'm not really the kind that just keeps his mouth shut and you know, two bags full of rogers are, like, I'm, very, I'm quite opinionated, um, as my boss at work will tell you. But, yeah, but I, I don't know that I could make it in the military today, and I certainly don't want her to do it. She's a, hmm. I think she should be, she should finish what I started. Like, she she's has a lot of that same gene, like, want to help people and science, especially related to... Medicine comes natural for her and doesn't have to really study, so uh i'm tr- trying to ensure that she doesn't do something silly, like take some humanities or <laughs> art appreciation
1: there's a place yeah. for that James come on though no. yeah it's
2: called yeah, it's
0: a,
1: when you it's got got
2: called a f- an elective it's when you got <laughs> credits you need to fill so you can graduate early, yeah, right, that is not a major yeah. That's a major mess up. That's what, <laughs> <laughs> majorly missing something. So, uh, well, you have some questions. Like I can see the I can see the wheels turning, smoke coming out of your ears. Like.
3: I I guess the biggest one I I, I want to take away, and I don't want to burn up the rest of the time. But at the moment of impact, when this or detonation rather, when this went off, the the fortitude and wherewithal that you exercised in order to look down and actually see the lower half of your limb departed and then grab your tourniquet, loop it over, and get it going. How few people, I think, could execute that and what that did, ensuring survival at that point in time is just crazy. And the fact that, that you were articulate throughout the whole thing, you remembered it, you, you, you mentioned on what it felt like to lasso your leg yeah. and, and the pain where oh. so many other people would have dropped into a point of shock that they probably would have just folded at that point. Right and and pushing yourself backward through it, like is it is it just innate in you the that fortitude that wherewithal that you you maintain consciousness throughout that and not just consciousness but like active consciousness, yeah. like you are exactly. not right. you are not paralyzed by stress and pressure at this point in time. Yeah. Rather, or was that trained into you?
2: Yes, yeah. I, I think it's a little a lot of things. Like training is absolutely necessary. Like you yeah. can't get there without it. You know, I mentioned you know when I teach about. The the dedication to uh, whether you're applying a tourniquet to yourself or you're practicing applying a tourniquet to somebody else or you're practicing your draw stroke from concealment or whatever the case is, you know, like it takes roughly 10,000 repetitions in the conscious for something to begin to be imprinted in the subconscious. And you can't get there without training. But you can't get the training without the dedication to do it because that stuff doesn't come easy, you know. Like you, I mean, tourniquet application in in kit in those in that environment that you're expected to practice is time consuming. But if you're a student of war, maybe or a practitioner of war, like it was a necessity. Like I I, I talk about with guys. And uh, they carry a gun every day that doesn't carry medical stuff. I'm like, you're a bonehead. Like, you know, like you're preparing for mortal combat with another human being. And you're so cocky that you're assured that you're going to come out on the upright end of this thing. Right. right. That's like I'm pretty assured of what I know and what I can do, but I'm not that assured. Like I still ca- I carry a tourniquet every day on me and a little ifac and a wallet with a chest seal and, and some combat gauze. but it takes and we've talked about this about law enforcement like this is one of the places that where i think people are failing law enforcement that they don't have a realization of how close they run the edge you know people like oh, i go to work every day and i'm an sro in a school it's never going to happen here i don't have to do this i don't have to do that minimum qualifications on a pt test you know, like, you, they're not prepared to make a difference in anybody else's life. And that's the difference. Right. Because hmm. you can't be dedicated to making a difference and not make a difference. Tracking. That's well articulated.
0: We've, um, MC Ryan usually has the screen go uh, progressively more and more blood red as we go over an hour. In fact... We've never reached the point where he's gone. Where he left? <laughs> <laughs> where he just took the timer away? Right. But I I enjoyed every minute of this personally. Oh, if there's That's ever a, been a worthwhile one.
2: Yeah, I don't think we ever got to the life and the day of a special operations medic. Yeah, so far it sounds the comp- life, life a day.
3: <laughs> it sounds compressed in about 16 minutes right now. So just to give listeners an idea of what uh, a day in the life would go, you you've given me a 16 minute snapshot of
2: what a day in my life was. Yeah. Correct. <laughs> like uh, yeah,
3: <laughs> you guys uh, yeah you, like
2: we didn't even get into the uh some of the fun stuff like we talked about the long distance thing and uh like i laugh about this uh quite often but like we'd gotten rpg'd one day and my team sergeant had gone to kandahar to see the command talk about some stuff and while he was gone you know catch away the mice will play and uh dude mess with you know mess with the team a little bit too much and i'm like i've had enough of this crap like that dude's time for him to die, and uh went and got to the <laughs> told my team leader. I'm like, hey, you know, pulled a little five Ws. Hey, me and these guys are gonna go do this thing, and we'll be back in a little bit. If I don't come back, this is where I won't be. <laughs> so, uh, but this is this will be where I was, and so we so we go outside. I get everybody together, and I I'm like, where we're we gonna go to get some elevation, and I'm standing looking at this. Tower that's been erected for to put a camera on uh, a day night camera, and I'm like, Oh, that's about 75 feet tall. <laughs> so I go grab a spool of 550 cord, tie a bowling in the end of it, tied around the down, tied around a uh, 300 wind mag, put my war belt on with my helicopter tether, uh, aircraft tether, and start scaling the tower. Get up about
1: tree stand on steroids.
2: Seventy, yeah, yeah seventy five feet. Wrap the tether around, clip it in like I'm a telephone operator, like about to call somebody on this, you know, tower, and pull pull it up. Stick the rifle through the rungs of the tower and take take a shot. And I like, <laughs> 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 so <that> we can be <laughs> doing this number. I'm like, wow, like. It's going to be a minute before this stops, you know, like I'm going to have to make a better shot at this because there's not going to be a follow-on shot if I miss, you know, we call it second-round corrections, right? And so this dude's still lobbing RPGs. Uh, the commander called in air weapons teams, which is a, helicopters. Uh, and uh, so they come buzzing by probably – 200 meters from the tower mm-hmm. and they clearly, the lead helicopter clearly saw me cause he's like, and then he turns the helicopter and starts flying around the tower <laughs> in a circle like this, like, and gets over at about my two, two thirty, And I turn and look at him with the rifles like this and I'm still rocking. And I'm like, <laughs> just keep rocking until it stops, you know? <laughs> and so, uh, it finally stops, grab the rangefinder, range finder range, The guy again, do some quick math, come up with a firing solution, wait for him to stick his head back out, time it, goes to stick his head back in. I timed like the average that his head was in before he sticks it back out and sent the round. And uh, he sticks his head out and the round strikes the concrete wall right next to his face, completely obliterates his face. One of the helicopters is pointed at me. The other one is pointed at the target. And so uh, the command was watching the entire thing in Kandahar When my team sergeant <laughs> like this. He's not there. <laughs> he's like, oh, my God. <laughs> like, Clearly, I cannot leave this guy alone. Right. Like, but the whole rotation, that rotation was like that. Like if I found a solution to fix that problem so I could keep my – like I'm a, I said I was a lazy medic. Right, Like, I'd rather shoot dudes that are messing with my dudes than have to patch my dudes. Like, I That's consider like that being pre-emptive, a good dude. Right. You're a
0: preemptive medic. Right. Yeah, very proactive. Right. Yeah, very proactive. Yeah. right. So it's I, holistic I medicine. whacked a few is. Like, I got some good video. Address yeah. right. the problem, not just the side effects. Yeah. That's right.
2: Yeah.
1: Don't address the Completely symptoms. Completely agree. The root but root. Root. Like,
2: <laughs> we're rocking back and forth. Like, I, that was the last shot I took there. Like, I, you know, <laughs> the rifle down. I'm like, I'm going to get my ass chewed I, I'm going to get my butt chewed. I'm like, doodly, 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 crawl down off the thing. I no longer get inside. The phone rings. Hey, put James on the phone. I'm like, beautiful. <clears throat> he goes, he's like, hey, good shot. Clip, and then hangs the phone up. <laughs> that was it. I'm like, whoo. Yeah. But, yeah, I had some good, I had some good, uh, we were on a, a few weeks earlier We were out doing a KLE or key leader engagement, you know. And my team sergeant didn't really like being a, he liked being a team sergeant, but he really wanted to stay a team dude. And so any chance he had to be on the roof with me behind glass, that's where we were. Like, I mean, we're still like great friends. And I don't know, I mean, I clearly wouldn't be here today without him. But uh, so we're on this roof and I think I we've talked about I've shared this story with you, but we're on this roof and I hear and like I just poke my head up and I see RPG go. And miss the the roof where we are. Well, the team leader and some other people underneath, like, having their little meeting. And, like, we're perched up on this parapet wall uh, laying in the... He's laying in the prone looking through a hole in the wall. And I've got a tripod set up. And I'm sitting Indian style just looking through the glass. And then I hear... And then I see, like, the, the RPG crest. And then come back down and it hit the wall right underneath where we are collapse the wall we go sliding down <laughs> sliding down the wall <laughs> into a rubble a pile of rubble you know everybody's like yeah, everybody okay you know and then you hear boop, 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 boop. and it's one of the uh one of the vehicles armored vehicles with a fifth cow on it with a dude sitting in it with a, like a video game where he turns and the cameras just move with him yeah right or the screens move yeah. right and he's wearing these dudes out about 400 meters away with a 50 cal you know like guys are trying to hide behind a donkey he's sending around to the donkey <laughs> like donkey's like it eh, falls over you know <laughs> guy comes in two days later with a wheelbarrow with half of a donkey on a wheelbarrow wanting some money for it right. i'm like i don't know how what happened to that donkey that's clearly not something <laughs> we did but um i mean it was like, the whole rotation was like that. I mean, it was Wild West. like That it is. Yeah. Got blown out of the bed one night. Like, the compound we lived in had uh It was an Afghan house where an SF guy had been killed earlier. His uh, team leader had decided to put a village stability operation in that town. There's no tactical advantage to being there at all. It was a FU to al-qaeda and the taliban that's all it was you know like we're gonna put dudes in the meat grinder and try to give you the F U at the same time like like it was a horrible decision command decision but was what it was you know <laughs> two bags packed roger sir and um <laughs> uh this is messed up i can't believe we're uh but uh where was i going with this oh the compound that. so so they had it was a compound. Well, on the outside of the compound, they had put uh, like the like 16, 18 inch wall mud walls, and then they put hescos, which are those square four foot by six foot boxes. They fill with gravel, yeah. right? And so they put a couple of those. Well, this guy in the middle of the night, he crawls up and puts a satchel charge on the side of the side of the wall, just so happens to be like, and the the on the inside of that wall is where like we had some, I don't want to say offices, but like the aid station. Right. And so you walk into the aid station. It was like a litter stand slash OR, makeshift OR and some other stuff. Well, in the back you walk through a door and that's where I slept. Well, my bunk was on the wall that he put the charge on blows me off of my bed against the wall that was built. And then I'm like onto the ground. I'm like, wow, that was interesting. Like, (laughs) Uh blows <laughs> like a three foot hole in the wall I'm like this is sporty like that was like two days <laughs> after we were there like got in a gunfight like got off the helicopter 20 minutes later I was in a gunfight like sitting up on a like side by side like waiting for like the way we got our supplies is they'd fly a C-130 and just push the stuff out the back sure. parachute to bring it down we go out collect it up get in a firefight while we're trying to collect our stuff they're trying to run us off so they can collect our stuff yeah and uh so I'm standing there and I hear that the terP, and
1: it's kind of like rugby,
2: right, okay, yeah, yeah, Don't, yeah so I hear the With terp, guns The terp and um, a couple of the Afghans talking, you know, and like <laughs> they start talking and they go down into a, a bomb crater right from a 500 pound bomb and I'm like, "What are y'all doing down there?" And they're like, "Oh,, you, we're about to get fired on over there from about 500 meters away. I'm like, where? He just points and he's like, "Oh, over there, you know, like, inshallah." you know, like, wherever they are, and I'm like, I'm like, ah. I'm like, I think we'll be all right, so me and the senior uh, engineer from the team, his name's Dave, start laughing about it. so I don't remember exactly what it was, and I heard in the distance, and then it's like, like, stuff, like, I'm like, hmm, somebody drops, I'm like, bottle rockets or something right here at my feet, you know? And then it happened a second time and it, it was like right past the head. It's like zip, 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 zip. Both of us are trying to do a happy dance to get around the back of this side by side, you know, and spare tire hanging off the back of it. And both of us trying to curl behind it. He's just as big as I am. And, uh, like you can't get two grown men. You can't get one grown man behind a rear tire by yeah. well, one of those things, much less two grown soft dudes. And so, uh... I finally got leaned up over the dash, took a knee, and I'm like, I think I've got him. And then he takes a sh- a couple shots, and then I let one off, and uh, that was the last. That was the last he let anything else go, except for he might have let some urine go out of his bladder when he got hit. But that was it. Like, like I smoked that dude straight up. Like, I'm not one of those dudes who are like, yeah, it's a headshot, you know, like trying to call her shot. I'm like, I hope I hit that guy, (laughs) right? Like, I think my math was right, but you know, like trying to do a ten-inch drill on a dude whose head keeps doing this is a little, is a little daunting. Yeah, you know, but yeah, it was, it was a wild west. There's a video of both of us trying to do the happy dance get behind that side by side. I'm like, I don't know what y'all talking about. I wasn't doing happy dance. Like, I had my, (laughs) you know, like I was completely composed. Incredible. Yeah. it's uh I mean that's just one of the trips, but uh, yeah, it I've had a very interesting career. And to say the least, um thankful for every minute of it. Right on. Well,
0: that was some good stuff. That was some that was a fantastic cast. Appreciate you joining us for this one. It's oh, been excellent. So can't imagine being anywhere else. <laughs> uh thanks everybody out there for listening as well. Uh hopefully you enjoy this one just as much as we did sitting here. And uh yeah. Where, how do you follow that? This is this is get trained. One of the, yeah. Um, get yep.
3: trained. Get trained. It's,
0: it can save your life. That it can. Yeah, that's actually a good thing to fall back on. Big lesson today. Yeah, many. Surround yourself
2: with people that are as dedicated to keeping themselves and others alive as you are.
0: Yep, I like that. And on that note, we will end. Thanks again, guys, for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thanks we'll for catch having everybody us. on the next one. All right. Bye. See you.